Good morning. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Happy that you're worshiping with us. Uh, I want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, if you want to fill the welcome cards out in the pew in front of you, we'd love to just uh, send you a brief greeting and uh, connect you with the church and however you'd like to uh, find out more about what's going on here. And I'd like to stand up here and say, you know, there's nothing weird going on here. This is all normal, and if you're new to church, that this is, there's nothing, you know, out of the ordinary. But, you know, that wouldn't be true. This is weird. We do believe that something goes on here that's strange. That's not like anything you have throughout the rest of your week. We believe, because God has tied his promise to it, that God, the very God of the universe, is going to meet with us here. That he's going to be present. And that he's going to be present with his people in a way that he's not present the rest of the week and the rest in other places. And it's because of those promises that we can come here expecting his blessing, expecting his presence, expect, expecting a God worthy to worship. And so I'll have to prepare our hearts now to meet this God. Let's stand. Pray with me. Our great God, we have been wandering in a dry and weary place. We have been thirsty in our soul, seeking to fill up our lives with something significant. And we've looked all over this world. And throughout this week, we've searched and tried other things apart from you. And we come now broken. We come now acknowledging, confessing that on our own we are just empty and that what the world offers is not enough. We turn to you, the one who loves us and the one who opens our eyes. We pray that you'll be with us now. You'll meet us in this place in a way that saves us and redeems us and renews us again to your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us. Fill us, O Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear this call of worship from 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it.
be seated. You know, we're going to begin now a, a turn towards confession of our sin. And I tell you, the last thing I want is Jesus to look on me in my sin. But the reality is I need it. I need him. We all need him because we need help in confessing our sins. We hide our sins. We hide ourselves. We need his look because he loves us and because the gospel allows us freely to allow him to look on us and bring salvation to our soul. Let's sing now. Join with me now as we come to this Lord who loves us, bringing our sins to the only one who can do something about it. Let us confess our sins together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no help in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable as we are. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises, 
declare to humankind through Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Take a moment now and confess our sins privately. There's a profound recognition in all of Scripture that humans cannot on their own work our way back to God. We can't build a ladder back to him. We cannot reconcile ourselves. Salvation must start from him. There is no way that we can even have a human priest to intercede for us. This is the word from God to you. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You have someone in heaven who has made ultimate intercession for you and continues on your behalf to plead with the Father for your cause. Because of that, as you bring your sin today to Christ, you know his response to you is that you are forgiven, restored, healed. Your slate is wiped clean. And you can stand now as righteous sons and daughters of the King and praise his name.
The Old Testament. Mic check. Microphone. All right, there we go. The Old Testament reading for today comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And the New Testament reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. 
so today we have a kind of a special Sunday planned. It's a Sunday where we will actually do two things that are a little bit out of the ordinary. One is that we will be um, appreciating our servant leaders uh, today, and we'll have a special dinner outside and picnic, Lord willing. I think it's going to be fine, and we're just going to have a time where we can uh, take a moment to go up to various servant leaders and teachers, etc., in the church and just say thank you. And, of course, we're also going to be commissioning a, a, a seminary intern for his service with us this summer, Jerry Ornelas. And if you were to go up to these servant leaders and say, thank you for your service to God and us as our, and whatever that is, our teacher, our, uh, our servant leader team member, our elder, our WLB member, all the, the rest, or as an intern, if you were to go up and say thank you, perhaps... They might say to you, well, no, thank you and God. It really is my privilege. Is that what you'll hear? Perhaps. But the question is this. Would it be more than a polite or gracious response? Well, today we discover how it really is the only response if one is truly discerned their call to service. If they've truly understood, both existentially and even theologically, what it means that we are given a great privilege. It's to say, happy to serve. It's to say, oh, it's my privilege. It's, oh, it's the joy of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a, how do I say it, a deep and abiding response, to be sure, not always felt immediately. But that's what we want to look at today, and today we discern how it is that this is more than a polite and gracious response, but at a heartfelt emotion rooted in a deep conviction about who we are and what we are privileged to do as a result. Let's open in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for being present already, reminding us of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And the story of our lives is so beautifully sung in that great hymn, Amazing Grace. How from beginning to end, your grace is sufficient. We pray now, Lord, that you will meet with us at this time, that you'll be our prophet in our midst. But in the mystery of your sacramental union with word, that you would now become the flesh of the people through this sermon. And speak into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, notice our passage in First Timothy. Notice particularly, for instance, by the way, that you might have heard this passage recently. It was preached about a month or two ago, uh, focusing particularly on verse 17 in the sermon on Sola Deo Gloria. But I did not get an opportunity then and even said then I would want to come back to this passage because this rest of the passage is just the context for that ending exclamation, Sola Deo Gloria, so to speak. But now I want to look at what really Paul is, is attempting to articulate here. And you'll notice, especially in verses 12, especially that verse 12, that it begins with this thanksgiving, which then will lead him, secondly, to a kind of, well, what's the root cause of this thanksgiving? And you'll hear a kind of two-part response to that. There's this thanksgiving, and then part one is he'll give you, by virtue of his own personal testimony, his own autobiography, he explains to you what he discovered about himself 
part one as the worst of sinners. And then that brings you to part two in his autobiography and how he discovered what he had access to, what he received when he encountered God in this wretched state of mind and state of life and what he received in response and not a reciprocal response at all. Of course, he received grace and mercy. And that's this basic outline of the sermon. Thanksgiving, root cause of Thanksgiving, part one, autobiography of a wretched sinner, part two, autobiography of a saved by grace through faith alone, and how that makes all the difference in the world, and why he can be thankful, because that's the issue here. What is he thankful for? Well, let me read it again. I thank him who has given me the gifts, the strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Notice three things, giving me strength. Paul is telling you of an awareness that he came to that relative to himself that he doesn't have anything special in his natural giftedness to do what God has asked him to do. I mean, we see this all throughout Paul. 1 Corinthians 2.1, And I, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with any lofty speech or wisdom of my own. He says, I decided, in effect, to, to repent of all self-confidence in what I could bring. He says, I decided to know nothing among you of myself, but rather Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he goes on, I was with you in all weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I mean, I can testify to that experience in many, 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 many instances of it in a visceral way. And I hope that you can too if you are a servant of God. It's just one of the core experiences of those who have truly been called. You see it in almost every biography of, a, of an evangelist, of a missionary, of pastors and teachers. It's, it's this real and existential sense of one's impotence. It's as if God, I think it's the Judson Taylor, but the God looks to and fro throughout the land looking for those most unworthy and when he finds them, he asks them, come and serve my kingdom. There is such a visceral thing. If you read the history of, of pastoral theologies, think of Gregory of Nazenzis and others who, who fled the ministry because of their self-awareness of, of impotence and sin and wretchedness. You see this throughout the history of the church. A kind of reluctance to serve out of self-loathing. It's everywhere. This first awareness that I don't bring anything to the table. Not this table. Not this service. And secondly, he goes, Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful. Here again. The second thanksgiving is that he judged him faithful. But why would he be thankful for that if he were faithful? Well, he discovered he wasn't. 
his awareness of his faithlessness, his trustlessness, if you will. Paul will say in chapter 3 of Philippians how he put no confidence in his flesh. He didn't trust himself, not one bit. He then explains how he had once put his confidence in his flesh and all of his worldly credentials and all of his training and, and how it led him to this incredible despair of discovery when he encountered God. How it was that, that he had been given even a thorn in the flesh, he'll describe elsewhere, in order to humble him. God knows. We have all discussed what is that thorn in the flesh. But what we know is it brought him to an awareness that he was unworthy, that he was undeserving. And it goes on to say, and he appointed me to his service, this awareness of a great privilege to be asked by God to kingdom service. I want you to be sure that, that you understand really what he's saying here. It's not, well, you convince me to service, a dutiful attitude here. That's not what he's saying. It's not, I bartered for forgiveness for my service or a guilt-driven service. It's not even, well, I kind of connived and manipulated myself, you know, got to know the right people and did the right things and, and managed my portfolio quite well. And I found a way to manipulate myself into this incredible position. That is, it's not a service of selfish ambition. So not a reluctance, a reluctant sense of duty, not a guilt-driving attempt to self-atone, not a selfish ambition. Well, what is it? It's when you, it's when you perhaps have had something like this happen in your life, when, when you're thinking, I could never be able to do that or be that. It's that disposition where it's something that you would just feel like, God, that would be crazy cool if I could be that person. But, oh, that's never for me. I mean, I was trying to think back just to see if I can open up your mind a little bit as to, to how that might have been in your life. But in my life, I guess maybe the first time it ever happened was in a basketball team when I was about this big and I had no clue. I didn't even start, but they asked me, the team asked me to present the, at the banquet the, the, uh, the plaque to the, uh, the coach. And I didn't start. I wasn't good. I don't know what was going on. I was very insecure about being on that team. And, and, and I really, truly stood up there, and I was speechless, and I could not speak. I'm not lying. Some of you are laughing because you just can't believe that, but it's true. You really don't know. I mean, that's actually been a big problem in my life for most of my life. It wasn't until I became a minister, honestly, that I could even read out loud. When I was asked to read out loud in front of a class, I, I, could, I just would just literally shake. My confidence was so low, I could not even stand up and read. And that's the way I felt. And I remember this like, God, that's the coolest thing in the world. But oh, no, I can't do it. Have you had that feeling? It's the same one I had when I was asked to be the captain of, a, of my high school football team. And it was like, oh, God, no, I could never do that. I mean, those are always the, the cool people. Well, they weren't. There were other reasons why the coach did it, obviously. But I know when it goes. These moments of just total self-awareness that I'm asked to do something that's just totally greater than me. And 
it's like something I would love to do or be, but I can never imagine myself doing it. That's what Paul is saying here. If you get the sense of this, of this deeply existential admission through his thanksgiving of, I just can't believe I get to do this. Paul is aware that to be asked or appointed to serve is to ask to do a task that really does transcend all other tasks. For to me, to live is Christ, he said, and to die is to gain. That's a statement, if you read it in Philippians, where he's saying, he's wrestling, do I continue to remain on earth in service to you? Well, I would do anything. I would die to do that, even though, actually, I'd rather die than to do it. I mean, have you been there before? I would die to do this for you. I would do anything. It's an incredible, amazing request of my Lord, my Father, who who reached down in my life and said, I want you, Paul, to go and preach to the Gentiles. I would do it. I would kill. I would kill for myself to do that. But, oh, God, I'd rather be killed because I'm so scared. I'm so unworthy. I'm ready to go into that safe place with you. There are moments, maybe you felt them when I'm just ready to go to the safe place. I'm ready of the... Of the fear. I'm, I'm tired of the fear. I'm tired of the anxiety. I'm, I'm tired of always feeling inept, always feeling like I'm not up to this, and I'm trying to fake it all the time in front of you, and, and you know that gets tiring. Maybe you know that sense as well. This is what Paul is talking about. For me to live as Christ, to die would be gain. If I am to live, though, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to just stop this whole thing. This charades of being what I know in my heart I'm not. But God has asked me. And it's an incredible privilege. can't believe he's asked me to do this. I came from the wrong side of the track, says Paul. Now, unless you think this is just sermonic hyperbole, what do you think? It begs the question, what then brings Paul to this heartfelt motivation? What brings him to this place of, no, thank you, church. Thank you, God, for letting me do this. Well, that's where part one of part of the second part of the sermon, rooted, first of all, in his autobiography of a deep conviction and awareness of the depth gravity of his sin. The apostle began with this wretched past, describing himself as a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. These are deeply harsh words. The apostle is not exaggerating when he said this. Paul, who was then known as Saul, was present for the stoning of Stephen, you'll remember, giving approval to his death in Acts chapter 7. He was also the ringleader of the terrible persecutions that followed that event. Saul was, we're told in in, in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, quote, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then it says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That shows up in chapter 9, the moment before 
Christ appeared to him. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. While he traveled to Damascus to take more prisoners, in addition to his own blasphemy, he tried to push Christians to commit blasphemy, and it goes on and on. In short, before he came to Christ, Paul was thoroughly uh, disreputable as an individual. The fact that he committed his crimes in the name of God made it all the worse. This is the way Paul describes it. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only looked up, uh, locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I approved of it. I celebrated it. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, he's talking about himself, in raging fury, I was against them and I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. But that's not even a half of it. As you go deeper into Paul's existential moral journey, you begin to discern that those sins were just the tip of the iceberg because beneath every one of them, and the use of these words, we know what they really were. Well, Jesus Right after that verse of describing Paul as a ravaging, angry, persecuting, blaspheming person. When Jesus appeared to him in this glorious way, we're told in the text, verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, not why are you persecuting all those people? No, though that was true. He says, why are you persecuting me? And that's when Paul went blind. That's when the Spirit of God overwhelmed his sensory perception. He was as dead, sensorily speaking. It came to him. He was rebellious against God. The original sin of all other sins. And so, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It got personal fast, didn't it? It was a personal, offensive, aggressive, raging against the Lord. Paul's conclusion then about himself, exposed and raw, was to say, and he meant it, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So we need to stop and just think about this. Where's Paul at, do you think, in his autobiography? What is he telling you about himself that would, would somehow ground his thankfulness. Is he really saying he's the worst of sinner of all sinners in the world? Or is this rather a realization and expression of how he has come to see himself? Clearly, it's the latter. I mean, notice, first of all, that 
that you don't want to dismiss this as just unique to Paul, not this final declaration, though Paul had his own personal autobiography of how that worked. Because behind all of these languages of blasphemy and and persecution is this word, Paul was a, quote, violent, hubris man in the Greek. He was a hubris man of arrogance and insolence against God. You see, we are all blasphemers. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that. He uses the same word as to describe all humanity. We are all these folks who persecuted Christ. That's what we're told by Peter, I mean by Stephen in Acts 2 or Peter. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of and foreknowledge of God. You, looking at the crowds, the crowds were not just Jews, they were Gentiles, they were Hellenists, they were all sorts of folks. You, me, crucified our Lord when we made it necessary for my Lord in order to be reconciled, us to be reconciled to God, the only way forward was for him to suffer my hell, my just punishment. We did it. We put him on the cross. The pride of original sin, however it is revealed by our particular sins, is what Paul had come to see about himself. Everything you just sung in that song. Did you hear the storyline of your life in it? Every single thing of the results in your ultimate utopian life for all eternity that is yours in the waiting. Every bit of it. Unworthy. Every bit of it. It was not what we deserved. We rejected the one who wants to give it to us. We persecuted the one. We blasphemed the one. We had pride and insolence against the one who can alone give it to us. You see, the truth is rather that when we are convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit, the result is that we give up all such comparisons of our sin and others. That goes wipe away. The Pharisees showed they had never come to that place when they were constantly attacking and condemning all the others. For when the Holy Spirit grips you with this awareness of yourself in light of what God has proclaimed throughout all of history, we will declare, I'm the worst. I am the worst. Because you'll know your sin. You'll see your heart. You'll see what's beneath those surface sins. Paul said, I'm a wretch. That's what he was saying. I'm just a miserable wretch. And if we stopped here, we would know nothing of Christianity. For it is true that true Christians, Christianity will lead us to a humbling assessment of ourselves once estranged from God. But it is also true that humility is the beginning of salvation and reunion to God by grace and mercy. Wherein we are restored to him, we are given a new identity, but an identity that never, ever forgets 
the older. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's when Paul would describe in part two how he receives mercy. Mercy is the unmerited pardon of God. It's really important to distinguish a little bit mercy and grace. For grace is the unmerited favor of God. I know it sounds nuanced, but it's, but it's getting at this full, robust sense of God's incredible salvation gift to us. For on the one hand, I think sometimes we don't want to talk about mercy very much. And if we do, we kind of smooth it out. Because mercy is about punishment subdued. And we just don't like to use that word punishment anymore. We don't like to talk about God being angry at us anymore. Because for us, most anger is unjustified, at least at the level that we're talking about. In a world between human and human, such anger is is oppressive anger. It's hard to imagine a righteous anger, a righteous judgment. But just consider what we do when we sin against God in comparison to even another human being. I mean, I I can't remember, I think it was Spurgeon who said it's like the difference between sinning against an ant and a human being. We are not eternal. We are not infinite in our beings. We are not absolutely, purely Beautifully, perfectly holy, loving, merciful, kind, righteous, gracious, on it goes. We are not all-powerful and all-knowing. We are dealing with the God who gave us life itself and everything in it. All of it derived from him. We're dealing with a God who... Who our very being in the image of God is a derivative being from him. Our purpose, our dreams, our mind, our beauty, what we do, what we can create. Everything we are is a derivative event from this God who is and who always was and always will be. Who is in need of nothing but is in himself Person, which means relational and communal and hungers and thirsts for relationships just for the mere pleasure of having relationships with his creation, us, and made us to have that relationship with him. This God is the God we rejected and did so quite arrogantly, thank you very much, didn't we? I can do this on my own. I don't need you anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not, when I hear someone disrespecting your name, I'm not going to speak up. I'm going to just zip it up. Peter to Christ on the day of his crucifixion. How we, how we were disloyal, unworthy. And for God to pursue us and bring us this grace of mercy and relent of his justifiable punishment. And then to give us this grace of an overflowing, notice it says, and the grace of our Lord overflowing, that is to say super abundant for me, which God receives, super abundance. He says, quote, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. God's faith for me, it says. God's love for me. 
It's the faith and the love of Christ Jesus that provides this incredible grace. I reminded her of this hymn by Julia Johnston. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon, cleanse, and within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It's just, that's the feeling that Paul is exuding here in this passage. And why? Because he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now be careful. You would read that quickly, and you would think that what it says is, well, he just didn't know. Oops, mistake. (laughs) I rejected God. Didn't know what I was doing. Well, in a sense, that may be true. We really don't know what we're doing. But it's much deeper than that. You see, it's particularly in this idea of linking this word to faith. Because Paul teaches in Romans 1, for instance, that the ignorance, if you will, is an intentional ignorance. It's an ignorance kind of echo where you grab hold of the revelation of God that's super abounding all over the place, and we push it away in a very active and vile rebellion against God. So is this this living in supposed ignorance is actually a choice. We want, it's the see no evil, hear no evil, just kind of what we don't know won't hurt us kind of an attitude. Let's just don't pursue this. Let's don't know this. Let's flee any revelation that would come to me in a way that I can't manage to to echo, which is to grab it and push it away. It's harder to push away a sermon, isn't it? Than just the glory of God speaking through nature without words although no less significant. You know, this was the passage, this passage of the foremost of sinners that the, Pilgr- the author of Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you know, it's one of the greatest stories ever told of, a, of the Christian life in, in a kind of an analogous way by, by John Bunyan. And this was the story that also made him write his autobiography, and he entitled that autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. You see, Bunyan understood that this passage was about himself, just like it's about you and me. He wrote this, Though I was such a great sinner before conversion, yet God never much charged the guilt of the sins of my ignorance upon him, a me. Only he showed me I was lost if I had not Christ, because I had been a sinner. So what's going on here, guys? What's happening today as we commission a man to service, and as we give thanks to those who've been serving us. Well, it really is about amazing grace, everything about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This line from the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, is at once joyful and shocking, isn't it? It's shocking. Wretch? Really? That is not PT, or PC, I should have said. Not physical therapy. So it might be. I mean, what's going on with that? Wretch. More than lost our way, even though he talks about his lost, but he doesn't mean lost our way as in, oops, made a wrong turn on the road somewhere. Rather, it's a statement of realization about who we are as human beings in our sin of rebellion against God. I'm a wretch. I'm on the other side of the track. There's nothing about my natural trajectory that would get me to heaven. Nothing. I really am screwed. 
and was screwed. The statement of realization, not just a motivation or instructional need in my life, but I needed salvation. I need to be restored as a human. And I'm going to ask you right now, have you come to that place in your life? Really, have you come to that place where you see yourself as a wretch, a scalawag, an imp, a terror, a sufferer, not of someone or another circumstance or person, as in not just a victim. I am a sufferer of myself. It's ironic that in this day and age you'd hear a sermon like this, perhaps. But here's, here's the silver lining, if you will. Some of you know that already. Some of you have struggled with this sort of self-awareness. And the good news of this sermon is you're home. You're home with other people who do the same, if they're truly believers. In fact, you've come to believe, if you understand what's happening here, that that is exactly what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to start to grip you for salvation. It's when... You see that awareness when you begin to emerge in your life at that deep and personal level that you now know the Holy Spirit is leading you to salvation. Without that, you wouldn't be saved. There is no salvation except that one would humble themselves, acknowledging their need for a Savior. Perhaps the fact that your sins are nicely valued within a highly developed social etiquette has perhaps done a work on you that in a way has somehow blinded you of that genuine wretchedness within you. And I ask then, go deeper. What about your heart? Is there some degree of self-righteousness or contempt? Could you, for instance, really say that in some sense you don't have a debased mind about God, about others? I mean, the language that Paul gives us here, is there no envy in your heart, no resentment? I'm reading from Scripture the things that deserve punishment because, again, they're always rooted in this original sin of rejecting God. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, and then he tries all this haters of God. What? That's right. It's all part of that. Insolent, haughty, boastful. Don't we invent ways to disobey God? I mean, aren't we amazingly creative in how we can rationalize? You know, the little politically correct sins that everybody else is doing. Disobedient to parents. Woo! Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he goes and say, though they had all the revelation in the world they needed of God, this is what we did with it. We not only approve us, but we actually, we approve those who do it. What sins of commission in more inward, less outward ways do those of us with some social etiquette commit that have blinded us to our wretchedness? 
Or perhaps you have been raised in the church and in a Christian home, and to be sure, this will, may have had a great and wonderful positive impact upon you, especially insofar as you have been spared some of the more pernicious and self-inflicting suffering that is a result of certain overt and outward sins. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, pastor, oh, I would love to have that sense of conviction about myself and my heart and and the wretchedness of it. But honestly, while I hear you theologically, I've just never quite felt that way. Well, consider. The law says as much as is given is required. Consider what you've been given. Consider what blessing the covenant has been to you. To, to restrain certain things in your life that enabled you to be successful in this life even. The habits and the norms and the lifestyles that come from, from the kinds of family situations that enable these sorts of things. Consider that for a moment. As much as is given is required. Ouch. That's part of the law, by the way. That's not, you know, we're going to talk about the gospel here. That's not how we're going to get saved. Remember that. But it's amazing if we just stop to think about it, how there's not a man, woman, or child in this room who could not come to a conviction. I'm really a wretch. Man, I'm messed up. There's something wrong with me. And that's the moment. There's something wrong with me that you don't ever want to forget. No matter how long you're in the ministry, no longer how long you're in a church, Know how, how much you've learned the Christian etiquette. There's something really wrong with me. You see, Paul has said to us today that to downplay human depravity inevitably results in minimizing the amazing grace of God. One theologian said it grace is amazing because it saves wretches, not because it puts a final polish on nice people. You cannot be saved if you are not lost. You cannot be freed unless you are not enslaved. Have you ever listened to Psalms 51 as we close here? You had it read again. We read it a lot here. We use it a lot in our confessions. You know, I'm willing to bet you that hardly any of us have really given much attention to the second half of that psalm. We're familiar with the first half, I hope. A plea for mercy out of a deep conviction of sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Paul, I mean, David demonstrates his awareness of sin, even when the ultimate sin is all about, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You hear what he says there? Hey, that's, that's coming to that part one. I'm a wretch, says David. I'm a wretch. And he goes on to say, God, you would be justified in total condemnation and punishment against me. Here's what he said. said. So that you may be justified. It would be justified in your sight. To bring the full curse against me. This is not a man that's, you know, sleezing through. Oh, I didn't do too bad. It's an acknowledgement of his impotence to make things right even. He is at God's mercy because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In other words, there's no sacrifice I can bring that could possibly atone for how bad my sin is. Even my sacrifice would be stained with all kinds of self-interest and self 
pride of the greatness of my sacrifice, which is an independent spirit against you. And so what does he do? He prays for restoration with God. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Stop. Is this a prayer for salvation itself? Or this prayer to take not the Spirit of, 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 of God away from me, is it a pray not to remove him from service? Now that was a little bit of an adjustment for you, wasn't it? If you're familiar with this. But look what happens next. That's the turning point of this psalm. Because he goes immediately into service language, moving to a service and witness and ministry. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Lord, don't remove this calling to be the great king of Israel away. He's rejoiced in the salvation of God. He's aware of his sinfulness, his utter inability and unworthiness now to be the king. And we've been hearing about this journey through our sermons and series in Samuel. It's been wonderful to trace this in David. And all of a sudden he says words that typically pastors use when they get up to stand and and give sermons, for instance. You've probably heard some of this language. He goes, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, and here's that classic. O Lord, I've heard it in so many different contexts. Open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. We've said that so many times. Paul is saying it as a man, broken, contrite, and self-aware of his utter wretchedness. And he's aware of the amazing gift that God has given him to be a minister of the gospel, if you will, in the Old Testament. A witness, a teacher of transgressions to be restored themselves. Lord, what a great privilege. I just, I'm, I'm right now, I'm on the brink. What a great privilege you gave me, and I'm about to blow it all. Would you not take your spirit away? I wish I had the time to show you that phrase of the spirit, how throughout all of the Old Testament it was very closely aligned that there was this sort of imparting of the spirit, the anointing spirit into the call of ministry. Yes, it's... A pray for assurance of salvation. Don't take your presence away from it. But here, I think it's very clear. Having rejoiced in his salvation, he's saying, but that doesn't mean, while I've got security of your forgiveness, that doesn't mean that you still entrust me to be your minister. That's what he's saying. It's true. You're saved by grace through faith alone, not of yourself, lest any man can boast. It's true that There is no works righteousness related to being a Christian, that it's all the works righteousness of Christ. But it's not true, according to the scripture, that that means every person is given the great privilege to serve God. The church will come first. God's bride. And and David here, like Paul, is just going, I can't believe, I know that I'm not trustworthy. I know I've proven that. 
Do you have that sense, servants of the Lord? Do you experience that? Jerry, wherever you are, don't forget this. Every bad thing I see in ministry, I mean, I'm going to say this hyperbole, every bad thing I see in ministry starts with forgetting who you are and how utterly, utterly unworthy you are to stand in front of a congregation or to lead a group and pretend one second that you have anything to offer anything at all. And that's the point. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That enables Paul then to turn to this incredible thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you, God. You didn't remove the spirit. I'm still serving you. And I'll even die to do it. I'll even die to do it. Now I'm supposing this is going to change a lot of the conversations out in the yard today. People are going to thank you so much for your service. And I know it's going to be an awkward moment. The guy's going to come back and say, well, thank you, man. It's, it's really a privilege. I don't know what I just screwed you with today because it's going to be a very awkward situation. But, you know, just, just say thank you. I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> but the bigger issue is I hope that we all will just reflect a little bit about what a great privilege it is. What a great privilege it is. And it's the greatest privilege of my life. Honestly, it is. That God would call us to serve his church. Amen. As we prepare to process to this table uh, to share in this amazing grace through uh, the means of grace that God's provided, we will um, have the servant leaders come forward to take up the collection. And normally at this time, we also take up prayers. Um, so come forward now to take up the collection. Um, but uh, we're going to have this special um, commissioning of Jerry during this time. So um, uh, we will ask you that if you do have things to that you'd like us to pray for, please write them down in the cards in front. Either put them in the basket as it comes along, or if you don't have a chance to, there's a basket in the back that you can uh, put it there, and we will um, pray for you during uh, this week. Um, uh, Just to announce, many of you, uh, uh, we do invite you to pray for our denomination. Uh, Some of us are going um, to Atlanta to participate in our, our denomination's General Assembly this week. Um, and it's something that you can follow along with. If you go to the, the church's, um, the denomination's website, um, there's even a, a live stream where you can, can look at it. If, uh, best to Google it. If you go to pca.org, uh, you will find the Porsche Club of America. Don't go to that site. You get a really wrong idea of what we're doing this week. Uh, pcanet.org is our denomination's one. Uh, they are not related at all. But you can uh, follow along with some of the 
the big decisions that are going on this, this week. Uh, it's our annual meeting of business. Uh, but also at the end of that week, there's a, a wonderful occasion for uh, Mission on a Bino, our, our church planning and missions uh, arm of uh, ministry of this church. Uh, we're having a recruiting and um, collaborative breakfast where um, those who are participating in that and those who are interested in participating in that ministry can, uh, can meet. Uh, so do be in prayer for that. Um, but but uh, as we uh, continue in our time of prayer, let me ask Preston to come up and begin our commissioning of Jerry. Commissioning, we will have an exhortation. Good to see my man. And uh, we'll have an exhortation and consider it done. We just did. And uh, that's that's good news for the congregation as well. They don't get to have to hear two sermons. And uh, But we do also want to pray for you. And so we're going to have an opportunity um, after the service. We're going to be able to have a, a time during the Sunday school downstairs to hear more from him. He's going to share more of his personal testimony in life and sense of calling a little bit and... and uh, and will bring us into the scripture a little bit, and then we'll um, have an opportunity to do some Q&A with him. It'll be a lot of fun. Just He has some questions for you and wants to learn more about us and this city, and, and uh, it'll be some fun to talk with him. So I hope that you'll do that. But, but right now what we want to do is just uh, hear from, from Jerry uh, a little bit about just, you know, why, what was it that, that, that led you to this internship? What is it that God uh, is doing in your life and in your heart that, that brings you here. Um, I, I should say real quickly before I get there, um, just kind of warm it up a little bit. That uh, so Jerry came in uh, a while back, about what was it about three or four months ago, three months ago, something like that. Yeah, October, something like that. And we got to meet. You know, Jeff was involved with that, and and um, I was really, really impressed with him. We we had a good time uh, with a long lunch together, and just started going into ministry and all the things that are involved with that. And and that's when this whole vision began to develop about his you know sense of calling and thought how, you know, we talked about that with Jeff as well, and and um, and that's when it was sort of concocted that he would do this, and as it's emerged, we've developed a, a, a bit of a, a job description. One of the things he'll be doing is he'll be doing a lot of reading this summer. Uh, he got his reading assignments, I think, last week. I hope you got those. All right, that's good, and uh, and, and it's going to be part of the collaborative. He's going to join with the other church planning apprentices and others that will be invited, and we'll have these conversations about these readings, kind of a readings course and missional ecclesiology. But in addition to that, he's going to be working and assisting with the college ministry, with the grad pro ministry, with the impact camp, and particularly the outreach in the Hill. He'll be, uh, let's see, what else did we put on your plate? All kinds of things. He's going to be going to Haiti with us. And um, what did I forget there, Jerry? About preaching? Yep. And there will be, there definitely will be, you'll see him, we'll see him two times preaching. Uh, you'll see him two times leading liturgy. And so this is an opportunity, of course, for you to pray for him and to uh, encourage him. The, these are very important years as this man gets his feet under his, himself and, and sense of who he is and what he is called to do. And so I hope and pray that you guys, I know you will, I know this congregation to be what it is. So tell us, though, your dream and your heart about all this. What's going on? Okay. Um, I wish I had a better story, but started off, honestly, with youthful vigor. It started off with this youthful curiosity. What is it like doing ministry in the New England area? That's it. <laughs> That's it. Um, and I just pursued it. And Jeff Hutchinson um, was used greatly in this process. Unbeknownst to me, I was simply just trying to check out all the RUFs in the New England area. And it turned out to be I came to visit Jeff <laughs> instead. And 
that's how this came about. So what do I envision? I envision, honestly, learning. I envision being challenged in ways that I would have never expected to be challenged, mm. um, especially being from the South. I mean, this is, this, it's a world difference. It really is. I love it. I love the differences, but it's a world of difference. Um, and just seeing how ministry is conducted here and done faithfully here is what I envision learning. Amen. That's great. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward now. We're going to just uh, pray for, for Jerry. And uh, you can just stand up. This is your ordination. You, we'll, make you, we'll make you kneel for ordination. How about that? But we're going to have an elder pray for you at this time. Our Father in heaven, we uh, call out to you in prayer for our brother Jerry Ornelas. We thank you, God, for bringing him here to us at CPC for this summer. We thank you for that calling on his life that you were calling him to, that you will give him wisdom, that you will walk with him each and every day as he ministers for the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that you will keep him from temptation, Lord, that you will quench the fiery darts of Satan that he may hurl at Jerry, deliver him from evil, Father, uh, bless this congregation, Lord, that we may love Jerry, that we may support Jerry, that he may find sweet fellowship in our midst, and that through this encounter that we have with Jerry and he with us, that you will help his discernment of that call that you are calling him to. And we just pray your blessing upon this man and his life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. We start. Come downstairs. Here's testimony, a little bit more of, of his, uh, what God has done in his life, lead him to ministry. And then also uh, we're going to have some real Q&A. And it's, it's going to get good. I have a couple of questions I think it's going to be a lot of fun to explore with him. So, so we're going to have fun in doing that. Where are we now? Are we coming forward? All right, let's stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise Him above the heavenly Christians, what do you believe? I believe that Christ makes intercession for us by his appearing in our nature, continually before the Father in heaven, and in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, Access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. And I believe that Christ will be exalted in his coming to judge the world, 
and that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his own glory and his father's with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God to judge the world in righteousness. Amen. You may be seated. Indeed, this is a table for wretched people. Uh, people who have acknowledged as much and have put themselves at the mercy and grace of God. And that's the good news of the gospel. Because you have absolutely nothing to prove when you come to this table. This is not for you to examine yourself in terms of your works worthy of God's eternal gift of life and grace. Rather, this is to examine your unworthiness and to the degree that you discern it, to yet again put your confidence on Christ. So if you sin this week, you do not excommunicate yourself. There is no such dogma in this church. This is a church that celebrates that if you have put yourself in the mercy of God, by grace your faith alone. You've joined yourself to some gospel-believing church, which is to bring yourself into his real and mediated presence. Then this is the table for you, any gospel-believing church. But if that's not you, uh, you are welcome here. Uh, you should not feel uneasy or uncomfortable here. No one is pressuring you to take this meal. In fact, we respect and honor you that you are true to yourself and that you want to be real here. And we want to be real with you. And we hope that we can talk and we can share and we can engage some of these things. And we would love this, though, to serve as an invitation, an invitation to, to believe on Christ. I know that's this idea of belief can be a hard thing to conceptualize and to understand. We need to talk if that's true. What is faith? I don't understand anybody can have faith. How, what is faith and how can you know you have it? These are questions we talk about all the time and we've all had, if you have the same. Maybe you'll pray the prayers, though, that are found in your bulletin. Right here on page, wherever it is, you'll find it. Right near the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would come. You would call all those to come to Christ. Even if, not to partake today, but as a meal that, that offers itself to all people. We pray, Lord, for those who, who are in Christ. That you would yet again convict us of a sin. We pray, God. We pray, for that joy of salvation. And to pray that prayer, we know that we need the conviction of sin. Please, Lord, convict us of our sins. Show us our hearts. Show us how we need Jesus again today. And fill us with the great joy of our salvation. And lead us then to be your witness in the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So on the night in which Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, the Lord took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, his suffering, his sacrifice, his love, his mercy. His grace. Grace and mercy that did not deny justice and truth and righteousness. But that brought the whole world together in perfect harmony. Justice and love. Right here. In a manner that can set you free and is setting you free. To the praise of God's glorious grace. 
Ask God now to enter into your heart, to change your disposition in the mystery of this meal. Set whatever needs to be set right, right with God. Elders.
the gift of God, the greatest gift you've ever been given for the people of God. Let us eat it all together. stand and an interesting coronation song, but a song that invokes even still his presence to come into this life, into our city. Come, our great king. Let's sing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now. Please be seated. Uh, we have just a few announcements that I want to share with you. Uh, again, if you're visiting, we want to welcome you. Please use the cards in front of you to just fill out your name and a brief contact so that we can get in touch with you. Um, yeah, if you want to just hold on a second for assembly, I do want to, uh, kids, if you just want to hang on just one second, I do want us to recognize uh, the leaders that we have here. Um, this is a, a, a day that we've set aside.